I'm Pastor Michael. Today is the inaugural worship service at Marshall, not Marshall, Creekside Middle School. Um, after two years of wandering in the pandemic, we have at last arrived to where we hope will be our home for the indefinite future. And I want you to know it is the fruit of much prayer. And I want to especially thank all the volunteers who have helped make this worship service possible. And I think that uh, on this occasion of the first Sunday at Creekside, it's appropriate to go back to the basics. And I want to preach uh, a sermon. It's it's actually an old sermon. um, And we're going to look at one of the foundational doctrines in Christianity. And uh, we're going to look at the doctrine of justification. And I cannot emphasize this enough, okay? This is the most central doctrine teaching in Christianity. Martin Luther, who is a Protestant reformer, he said it's the article upon which the church stands or falls. Uh, John Calvin said it's the hinge upon which everything else turns. So that, let me say, if you don't understand justification, you don't understand the gospel. But when you grasp it, and when you let it penetrate your heart, it will be the most powerful, the most life-transforming truth in your life. So with that, we're going to read the text. We're going to read Romans chapter 3, verses 20 to 24. These five verses, I want you to know, is the very heart of the epistle of Romans. I believe Romans is the most important book in the Bible. So we're going to read the core of the core, right? We're going to read the most important central text in the Bible. So it's printed for you in the bulletin. Let me read it for you. This is what Paul writes, the Apostle Paul writes. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So I have four points. Here's the outline. Number one, we're going to look at justification is a verdict. Number two, we're going to see what is that verdict based on. Number three, we're going to see that justification is a double verdict. And then finally, how do we receive the verdict? So let's begin. Number one, justification is a verdict, just like in a court of law. So imagine this courtroom setting. You are on trial for murder. The prosecution makes its case. The defense gives, presents the arguments. All the evidence is laid out. And then at the end of the trial, what happens? You receive a verdict. And that verdict is a legal declaration of your guilt or innocence. And so justification is God's verdict. 
that you are righteous in his sight. To be justified is to be declared righteous. It is a verdict of righteousness. That's the definition. Now, when modern secular people hear that, their eyes sort of glaze over, right? Because righteousness is not really a word we use anymore. Um, It's sort of an archaic word. It sounds like a, a religious word. It sounds like something only religious people would get excited about. But I want to show you that righteousness is much more relevant and far-reaching than you might think. Because look at what Paul says in verse 23. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so notice that Paul describes righteousness as glory. Now what is glory? Glory is significance. Glory is worth and approval. And so this is what all human beings need and desire. And therefore, I want you to know everyone needs justification. Everyone is hungering for justification. The uh, classic example that all pastors always use is uh, the film Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire is, the, uh, is, is about the 1924 Paris Olympics. It's the true story of a British athlete named Harold Abrams who is competing in the 100-meter dash, which is sort of the premier, the marquee event of the Olympics. And in the whole movie, you see Harold Abrams just killing himself. Right? He's killing himself, training and preparing for this race. And then, at the end of the movie, you see him, he's uh, in the locker room with his coach. It's moments before the race. And then he says, he's, he's reflecting on his life. He's reflecting on all the training. And then he says to his coach, I have 10 seconds in order to justify my whole existence. Now, when Harold Abrams says justify... Is he talking about God? Is he talking about righteousness in a religious sense? No, he is talking about his worth as a human being. He is talking about the finish line as his verdict, where he will either receive glory or he'll be found worthless. All of us, like Harold Abrams, is looking for a verdict. We're looking for something to tell us that we matter, that our lives have significance. And some of us do it through sports. Some of us do it through you know, beauty or romance. And some of us do it through academics. I don't know if you guys remember uh, the story of Asia Kim. Uh, it was a huge story back in its day. In 2007... Asia Kim faked being a freshman at Stanford. And she was able to uh, pull this off for eight months. And even though she wasn't a student, somehow she managed to live in the dorms. She would eat at the student cafeteria. She went to classes every day. She studied in the library. She joined various social clubs. She convinced everyone she was a student. Until one day, she was caught. She was uh, sneaking into the dorm room window at night. 
and she was arrested for breaking and entering. And it made national news. And everyone was wondering what would possibly possess this girl to do this? Like, why is she masquerading? Like, what is she getting out of it? I remember when I first heard the story, and then especially when I saw the name, I knew exactly why. Because for many people, college and where you go to college is a verdict. It's a verdict that tells you and the world your worth as a human being. I remember um, when I was in high school, my dad would bring me clippings of the um, L.A. Korean Times. And um, there would be clippings of college rankings. And I remember he would come into my room, he would sit on the bed, and he would then discuss with me which colleges he thought were within my range based on how I was doing in school at the time. And then he would pin the rankings up on my bulletin board so that I could look at it every day and and study it. And I remember it just being driven into me by my family, by my classmates, even at church. Where you go to college is a verdict of your worth and value. And so I feel like I know Asia Kim. She is Korean-American. She grew up in Orange County, just south of L.A. She went to Troy High School. If you guys don't know, uh, L.A., Troy High School is a very competitive, prestigious high school, much like Mission San Jose. She was a good student. She got good grades. So she applied to Stanford. But she didn't get in. And as she looked at her rejection letter, it must have been just so crushing. Because that letter told her she was a failure. She's a nobody. And she couldn't bear to tell her parents or her friends. And she was so hungry for righteousness. She was so hungry to feel the applause of her peers and her family. So that in a moment of desperation, and she probably didn't think it all the way through, she decided to lie. And so she told her parents, she said, Mom, Dad, I got into Stanford. Tears of joy welled up in her parents' eyes. They were so proud of their daughter. All of their sacrifice had been worth it. And then, word spread like wildfire. People were congratulating her, praising her. You're so smart, Asia Kim. And soon, to her horror, everyone at school knew. And now she was trapped. What could she do? She didn't have an end game. And so, at the end of summer, she packed up her bags, she loaded up the car, and she drove up the campus. And somehow, somehow, she pulled it off. She convinced everyone She was a student at Stanford. She posted photos on Facebook. She would give updates of her life as a freshman. And she even, I think this is so ballsy of her, she even sent home fake transcripts of her first semester grades. Eventually, inevitably, she got caught. 
And as I said, it made national news. And when I read it, her story really resonated with me because I can imagine just the red-hot shame she must have experienced. And in a way, I really admire her because most of us are not as brazen and as gutsy as Asia Kim, but we all have the same aching emptiness. We all have this need for approval and acceptance and worth. But because all of us have turned away from God, we are looking for that verdict from somewhere else, from our friends, our classmates, from society, someone to tell us, you are good. You're so smart. You're so beautiful. You're so talented. It's like water to our souls. We drink it in because it is a verdict. And it's a verdict that we cannot give to ourselves. It must come from outside of us. Someone has to tell us this. Someone with authority. So that's the first point. Justification is a verdict. Second, what is our verdict based on? I want to draw your attention to verse 20. I want you to know verse 20 is astonishing. I think it is one of the most profound statements that has ever been made. Verse 20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what are these works of the law? The works of the law is morality. It's obedience to the law of God. It's keeping the law of God. I want you to understand that the law of God is not just these sort of fussy religious rules, but it is the moral life. It's a life of integrity, a life of uh, compassion and justice. It's a life full of good deeds, good works, okay? That's the works of the law. And Paul says, we are not justified by the works of the law. I want you to know how shocking that is. Let's go back to the courtroom scene. You are a defendant in a criminal trial. What is your verdict going to be based on? The verdict will be based on the evidence, right? Either the evidence will be completely damning and incriminating, right? They found your DNA at the crime scene. There's surveillance video of catching you in the act. Or, either the evidence is damning or the evidence proves your innocence. You have a rock-solid alibi. You were in a completely different city when the, when the crime was committed. Or they caught the real culprit and he confessed to the crime. But whatever it is, it is based on the evidence. If Harold Abrams gets the gold medal, it is based on his athletic performance. If Asia Kim had gotten a Stanford acceptance letter, it would have been based on her academic record. So what does it mean when Paul says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul is saying the law of God cannot justify us. The law only condemns us. He says, through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law only tells us, it only demonstrates to us our guilt. 
our guilty verdict. And therefore, if we are to be justified, Paul says we are justified apart from the law. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets, that's the Old Testament, bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So, I want to convey to you how crazy, like how almost illogical this is. It is a count, because what this is saying is it is a counterfactual verdict. So that Luther says we are justified sinners. That's like saying you're an innocent murderer. Right? That's like saying you're a gold medalist who finished in last place. You don't understand justification unless you feel the rub of that, the, the injustice of that. So let me give you an illustration. Imagine that there is a failing school. At the school, the students aren't learning. The teachers are unqualified. The school building is dilapidated and falling apart. And so the state sends a school inspector to investigate, to to look into the matter. And so she pours over the accounts, she conducts extensive interviews, and she concludes... It is far worse than anyone thought. The school deserves a grade of F. It needs to be immediately shut down for public safety. But the principal of the school decides to bribe her. And so he hands over to her an envelope filled with $25,000 in cash. The school inspector looks at the envelope and then quietly puts it in her pocket. She returns back to the office. She writes up her report. She says, this school deserves a grade of A+. The teachers and the administrative staff are superb. This is a blue-ribbon school. This is a model school for all nations, for, for the whole nation to imitate. That is justification. And unless you viscerally feel... That's wrong and corrupt. You don't understand justification. Because your justification has nothing to do with your merit. It has nothing to do with your moral record. It has nothing to do with the evidence of your life. In fact, it is contrary to the evidence. It is a contradiction to the evidence. Let me give you another illustration. I'm sorry, I'm just piling on the illustrations. But it is so counterintuitive. Okay, Let me help you to understand it. So imagine you open your refrigerator at home. And you notice hidden way in the back is a carton. It's a container of food, of leftovers from three months ago. And so you take it out and with some trepidation you open the lid. And the smell almost knocks you out. It's like putrefied liquid mold. Right? It's just disgusting and foul. So you quickly shut the lid. And you decide that you're going to affix a label on the container that reads, healthy, delicious food. And so you write the label down, and then you place it back in the fridge in a very prominent, honored spot. That is justification. 
Justification does not change the inner reality of who you are. It doesn't make you a righteous person. It doesn't give you a pure heart. It is a declaration you are righteous. It is a label. It is a verdict. Do you understand? Some of you are saying, well, then what is it that actually changes us? And that's the doctrine of sanctification. Justification and sanctification sanctification always go together. I will preach on sanctification several weeks down the line. But that's the second point. Um, What is our verdict based on? Not the evidence. Okay. Third point. Justification is a double verdict. Double imputation. So here I want to introduce to you a technical theological term. Imputation. Because it's important to be precise here. And language helps us to do that. So this word impute comes from the world of accounting. It means to credit. It means to assign a value. So, for example, Genesis 15, verse 6, it says, Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And what this verse is saying is that Abraham was imputed with righteousness through his belief. Okay, So, again, imputation, impute means to credit to account. Let me give you an illustration. So think about um, an account manager at a bank. An account manager is sitting at her terminal, and she's looking at two bank accounts. Account A has $1,000. Account B has $0. The account manager decides that she is going to transfer funds from account A to account B. And so with just a few keystrokes, $1,000 is credited to account B. That is imputation. Notice, by the way, imputation doesn't necessarily mean that person B earned that $1,000, right? Maybe it was a gift from person A. Maybe person A said, please uh, uh, transfer the, the money. Or it could be the account manager is dishonest and is good friends with person B and is going to do person B a favor. But imputation simply means to credit. It doesn't necessarily mean Um, that you've earned it or you've merited it. Now, we typically think of the gospel as single imputation. So let me stay with the analogy of the bank account, right? So we typically think of it as you are a sinner and you owe God some impossible sum of money, right? Let's say $100 million. You can never pay this back. And so we think of, uh, of the gospel as single imputation. God has mercy on you, and so he imputes your debt to Christ so that on the cross he pays the penalty for your sin. Your debt is forgiven. Your sins are wiped clean. That's the gospel as single imputation. But I want you to know that is entirely inadequate. It is not enough. And here's why. Let's go back to the court case. You are on trial for murder. The evidence against you? Overwhelming. You are found guilty. You are sentenced to life in prison. But the governor decides to have mercy on you. And so he is going to grant you a full pardon. And he signs the pardon. You are released from jail. 
your criminal record is wiped clean, and then you change out of your prison clothes into street clothes, and then you walk out of the jail. Does that make you home free? Does that secure for you a good life? And the answer is no. Because you still have to make it in the world. You have to go out and get a job, pay the bills. You have to keep your nose clean. There's always a danger you will commit another crime. And so the governor's pardon is not enough to give you a good life, a righteous life. Don't you see, single imputation is not enough for eternal happiness and security. All it does is it puts you back in the garden. The slate is wiped clean, but you still have to earn your righteousness. This is why um, I really dislike it when I hear the gospel described as a second chance. Have you ever heard that language or that expression? The gospel is is a second chance Because this language of a second chance implies that yes, the debt is is paid, all your past sins are forgiven, and now God is giving you a second chance at life. So go out and do it, right? It's like in a race. And in the race, you stumble around, you fall down, and you end up in last place. And God says, I'm going to have mercy on you, I'm going to give you a second chance. So he puts you back at the starting line and you have to run the race again. Good luck. Don't you see, we don't want a second chance. Single imputation is not enough. We need double imputation. That is the gospel. The gospel is double imputation. Where Christ is credited with our debt, and we are credited with his righteousness. This is what Paul means in verse 21 when he says, the righteousness of God. This is not your righteousness, but it's the righteousness that belongs to God. It's Christ's righteousness. It's the righteousness of his perfect life, what Luther calls an alien righteousness, because it doesn't belong to you. Let's go back to the court case. You are convicted of murder. You are, sentenced, you are serving a life sentence in prison. And then, not only does the governor pardon you, not only does he release you from prison, but upon, upon release, he gives you a new life, a new identity. And your new identity is you're a war hero. You've won the Congressional Medal of Honor. And then everywhere you go, people salute you. And then your bank account is credited with $100 million. And then everywhere you go, doors are open to you. And people treat you with honor and respect. That's the gospel. It's double imputation. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, For our sake... God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ is imputed with our sin and guilt. We are imputed with his righteousness, the righteousness of God.
My uh, favorite illustration for this is um, from the movie Gattaca. Um, Gattaca is about this uh, future dystopian world where uh, babies are genetically engineered. And the main character is played by Ethan Hawke. And uh, Ethan Hawke is part of this underclass of people who were uh, conceived in the natural way. So he, he does, he's not genetically engineered, right? His parents conceived him in the normal way. And therefore, he has all of the limitations, all of the genetic flaws of being a normal human being, which locks him out of most jobs. Because in this dystopian future, all jobs are determined by your genetic record. But you find out that Ethan Hawke's greatest dream, his deepest desire, is to be an astronaut. He wants to explore space. But uh, but that position is reserved only for the elite, only for those with an impeccable genetic record, which Ethan Hawke does not have. And so the closest he can get to his dream is he becomes a janitor at the space center, And every day, he mops the floors and he looks longingly at the cadets training. One day, he is presented with an opportunity. There's an underground market for the genetic records of exceptional people. And there's a character played by Jude Law who is injured in a car accident. He's paralyzed from the waist down. And Jude Law is the cream of the crop. He is the 99.99 percentile. He is the elite of the elite. And so he decides to sell his genetic code to Ethan Hawke. And so there's a scene where Ethan Hawke is being interviewed for being an astronaut. And they ask for um, his urine sample. He gives it to them. And they're doing urinalysis. And then the computer screen reads 99.99 percentile. And then the interviewer says to him, congratulations, you're in. Welcome to the aerospace training program. And Ethan Hawke is shocked. He says, what about the interview? And the person says, that was the interview. Because they thought Ethan Hawke was Jude Law. He's in. It had nothing to do with his actual merit, his physical ability, or his intelligence. That is justification. We are in because we have Christ's record imputed to us. The last point, how do we receive this justification? And the answer is, You receive it by faith. Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You receive justification through faith. And when we say faith, we mean not by good works. Because faith is the empty hand that receives the gift. Paul says, verse 24. We are justified by his grace as a gift. I want you to know, if you grasp this truth, if you let it penetrate your heart, it will liberate you. Remember what I said earlier, all of us 
are looking for a verdict. Every time we go on a first date, every time we go on a big job interview, every time we make a big presentation or a musical performance, all of these things are verdicts. And you live off of these verdicts. You basically go through life accumulating these verdicts, good and bad, so that your self-worth is based on all of these verdicts. Your career, the schools you applied to, the things that your parents said, the parties that you were invited or not invited to. Your whole life is a trial where you are constantly being weighed, evaluated, and measured. But when you believe the gospel, then you have the ultimate verdict in Christ. And I want you to know that verdict overturns all the other verdicts in your life. That verdict is infinitely greater than any Stanford acceptance letter. That verdict makes an Olympic gold medal look like dust. Because when you have this verdict... It will thrill your heart. It will satisfy your soul forever. Because in Christ, God says to you, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. In you, I am well pleased. And that can never be taken from you. You can never lose it. You can never disqualify yourself from his acceptance and his approval because it is not based On your life. It's not based on your moral record. But it's by his grace. I want you to know. This is the most glorious. Beautiful. Life transforming truth possible. All the applause. All the acclaim. All of the acceptance that Jesus alone deserves is yours. And you have it now. Now as a foretaste. And then you will have it in fullness in the age to come. I want you to know that if you could truly understand this, you would scarcely breathe. The wonder of it would fill your heart. This is the good news of the gospel. The doors of heaven are open to you. Not because of your record, but because of Christ's record. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of justification in Jesus Christ. Help us to grasp it. Help us to take hold of it in our lives. And then we will be filled with joy. And it will give us this unshakable confidence and boldness. And at the same time, it will humble us to the dust. As we begin this new chapter in our church at Creekside Middle School, We ask for your blessing and protection. And we ask that we will never move beyond this basic truth of the gospel. 
that in Christ we have every spiritual blessing. May this teaching always be at the center of our church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.